Hello and welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration and citizenship issues. On May 10, 2019, the Supreme Court of Canada rendered its decision in Canada, Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness v. Chabra. There, the Supreme Court ruled that immigrant detainees are not limited to seeking release through the federal detention review system. Rather, they can also seek habeas corpus in provincial courts. Peter, Deanna, and I are joined in this episode by Erica Olmsted and Molly Joyet, two lawyers who work with Peter, and who, along with Peter, argued as interveners at the Supreme Court of Canada in this decision on behalf of the Canadian Council of Refugees. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Here with uh, Deanna Okanachoff and Steve Murens. Uh, we're joined today uh, by my colleagues uh, Molly Jock and Erica Olmsted. Um, Erica was the uh, lead counsel on the intervention that Molly and I worked on uh, at, for the Canadian Council for Refugees in the decision that, or in the case that re- where a decision recently came down from the Supreme Court of Canada in uh, China. Um, so welcome, uh, Erica and Molly. Thanks for joining us. Um, so what we were hoping to talk about today, and I think uh, Steve already did a bit of an intro, um, or will have done an intro by now, yeah. uh, which is uh, to talk about some of the implications of the decision. Um, the decision deals uh, broadly with the issue of whether or not habeas corpus uh, is available to immigration detainees. Um, so I think we'll start by maybe doing some of the basic background of that uh, and what that means and, and how this plays out. So Yeah, so let's start with the basic of basic questions, which is why would someone find themselves in immigration detention? Like if someone who's not a Canadian citizen is walking down the street, why might they be detained? Uh, Well, there's grounds for detention under Section 58 of the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act. And so a person can be arrested by CBSA for a number of reasons relating to identity grounds, inadmissibility, um, which means that they've done something wrong and they can be deported from Canada, um, or if they're a danger to the public or unlikely to appear for removal. So there's some grounds that allow for the arrest of people with or without a warrant and this includes permanent residents or foreign nationals of Canada. Um, and there's different grounds for each of those. And then once they've been arrested, within 48 hours, they have to be brought to the immigration um, division to have their detention reviewed. And their detention will be reviewed on one of those four grounds. So you've got danger and an inadmissibility investigation, unlikely to appear, and identity grounds. There's another subset of groups uh, for people who have been designated as irregular groups arriving, but that's pretty rare. Um, And then the the Immigration Division will review their detention. So at these hearings, what what does it look like at the hearing? Who's the person who decides whether someone's released? Is it a Canada Border Services Agency officer? Is it a hearing before an independent tribunal member? Who hears these hearings? So they're heard before the Immigration Division of the Immigration and Refugee Board, 
and it is the minister's council, so a representative from the Canada Border Services Agency, who has to establish the grounds for detention on a balance of probabilities. And there's one at 48 hours. Uh, suppose the decision is made to detain them. How long do they stay in detention after that? So it depends what they're detained for. The most common ground for detention would be that they're unlikely to appear for removal or for a future immigration proceeding, uh, like a admissibility hearing. And so they're often detained until that happens. The next detention review would happen at the seven-day mark, and then it happens every 30 days indefinitely. And so people have been detained under the Immigration Refugee Protection Act for many, many years under these grounds as issues come up with removing them, for example. And so before we get into habeas corpus, maybe um, you do a lot of detention work, especially at uh, this firm. What have been some of the issues that have arisen in long-term detention? And I know the Immigration Refugee Board, I think, did an audit of the detention process for long-term detainees. What were some of the issues found there? Sure. Um, so I think there are various issues that contribute to long-term detention. Um, often the issue arises where there's an obstacle to removal, which will involve the willingness of the state to which CBSA is trying to remove the individual in concern to take that person uh, or take that person back. So. That can, that's often tied to issues of identity, but also diplomatic relationships between Canada and, and other states and sort of the geopolitical conditions that inform uh, the way that deportation may or may not be carried out. Um, so that's kind of one of the underlying, I would say, contexts in which this is taking place. Layered onto that are issues of, like I said, um, uh, procedural fairness, access to counsel for individuals who are in detention, access to information, their ability to get information about their identity, their ability to procure travel documents. Um, there's also been issues contributing to long-term detention around CBSA allegations that long-term detainees are not willing to cooperate in their removal. So where CBSA alleges that an individual is not cooperating. Um, there's federal court jurisprudence that says that that can, um, that, that creates a strong presumption for continued detention, which is problematic jurisprudence, but is out there. So uh, CBSA, uh, many of the long-term detainees in Canada um, have been in detention partially because CBSA has taken the position that they're refusing to, to cooperate with removal proceedings. Um, that's just the tip of the iceberg, but those are some of the some of the factors that contribute to long-term detention. The longest detention review case, for example, that I ever worked on was a guy who was detained because he was unlikely to appear for removal. Um, he was a failed refugee claimant from Iran, and he wasn't willing to sign a, an acknowledgement that he was willing to return, which is something that the Iranian government requires to accept people back. And that was in addition to signing a travel document application form so that he could be physically removed. And he was detained for six years until he finally made an application, a pre-removal risk assessment application. Um, and he was actually accepted uh, as being at risk based on that lack of cooperation that the Iranian government would see him as problematic given that he was willing to wait in a Canadian jail for six years rather than go back. So 
that whole negotiation around his removal actually served as the basis for his risk um, and stopped his removal. But there are a number of cases where detention can be drawn out like that, where it will happen for two or three or four or five years. And you have these detention reviews that are happening every 30 days, but at a certain day or at a certain point, they're, they're very much relying on the previous decision that was made. And so you've got decision after decision every 30 days, but there's no real analysis of what's changed, how much longer is this person going to be detained, is this too long now with respect to the objective that it's supposed to serve, and um, so you don't get a real fresh review of detention and everyone's just hung up on this one issue, like the fact that he's not cooperating, so he shouldn't be able to be released because he's not cooperating. So how would, like, would detention review number 16 look that different from detention review number 15? Like how long would a long-term detention, a detention review actually be? I mean, they can be anywhere from probably five minutes to many hours, and it, I think it often comes down to whether or not they're represented by counsel, because as counsel, you can decide, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prepare for one of these, and I'm going to really take a shot at it. I'm going to go over all the evidence that's been submitted over the past few years and try to argue for their release. Um, but oftentimes, you don't expect a different decision to be made than was made previously, so you, you kind of give up, and you, you know, you just you'll make basic submissions about what's changed, but they'll happen very quickly and they'll rely on the previous decisions to detain. Which is one of the biggest challenges in the detention cases, which is a case from the Federal Court of Appeal in Thanabella Singham that's been, in my view, misinterpreted, but, or, or and in what we're gonna talk about Chin in a, in a minute, but where the, the way it's been applied has been that if, when you get to the next detention review, um, you, the previous decision, if the board member wants to depart from the previous decision, they have to justify departing from that decision, which means that ultimately, in a lot of cases, you're trying to show a change of circumstances or you're trying to convince them that the previous decision was wrong. And so in terms of a change of circumstances, what ends up happening with the long-term detention cases is that you're at three years, let's say, and then the next detention review, and the, and the board member says, well, I've taken the length of detention into consideration, and in this case, three years doesn't seem unreasonable. And then the next detention review, it's three years and 30 days. Mm -hmm. And so then the board member is like, well, the last board member says three years was reasonable. I can't say, you know, is three years and 30 days, the, you know, does that, well, I don't think that crosses the line yet either. And then you're at three years and 60 days. And next thing you know, you're five years into your detention and you're trying to argue that five years and 30 days has changed the, the circumstances. When what the audit has made clear, or you know, what would, one would hope you'd be doing is, is reviewing the entirety of the detention, but that's often not what's happening. Um, and there was one case in Ontario where for two years, I think it was for almost two years, the guy went catatonic um, and was he was found he was apparently non-cooperative. In other words, he wasn't cooperating with his removal, which was why he was being detained for a long period of time. But actually, had some kind of mental breakdown and was catatonic for a significant portion of the I forget how many years uh, the, the he was detained. But as these cases went into habeas corpus in Ontario, some of the comments from the courts. I mean, one of the decisions starts by quoting Kafka. 
is mm-hmm. that, you know, it, which you don't often see in courts <laughs> in the sense that it's, uh, so the, the decision basically starts with a quote from Kafka and then goes downhill from there. So one of the things the audit showed was a big difference in like the culture of West versus the culture in Ontario. Have you done detention reviews in both or just heard from fellow lawyers about the dis- like what these differences are? I worked in Toronto before moving to Vancouver and, and to be totally frank, my practice shifted to become much more detention focused when I moved to Vancouver. And one of the reasons for that was the culture around detention reviews in Toronto Um, Most lawyers, quite simply, didn't ever represent individuals at detention reviews um, because the the view was there was no point. Nobody was ever released. Uh, You would end up spending hours commuting out to the detention center in the suburbs. Legal aid paid paid very little, uh, paid very little for that work, which which may be true here as well, but in in Vancouver, detention reviews actually lead to the release of the individual, so there's a strong motivation for counsel to get involved because you feel like you can make a difference. But uh, in Toronto, it had gone to a point where really lawyers were only getting involved where habeas corpus applications were being filed. Um, There's a culture amongst the CBSA officers and amongst immigration division members in Toronto with the refugee law bar that's much more confrontational, much more hostile. in Vancouver, I think the relationships between the private bar and, and you know, CBSA and the Immigration Division are much more collegial. There's room for discussions, there's room for a back and forth. Um, so I think it's a completely different world. I'm not saying Vancouver is perfect, and now that I practice out here, I have my, my critiques of the way the system works here, but it's, it's really night and day. So here the seven day and the 48 hours are done downtown, and I think the long-term detention ones the hearings are downtown too at the IRB. Where are they in Toronto? They're out at Rexdale, so that's in Etobicoke. It's at the. I mean, it depends, right? So in in Ontario, unlike in BC, though this is about to change, there's an immigration holding center. Um, that being said, not all individuals are held at the immigration holding center. Uh, the my understanding was there was a contract between the CBSA and the immigration holding center that said that the immigration holding center would not hold, uh, would not detain anybody who had a criminal record. So individuals with criminal records, like in BC, are held in provincial penitentiaries. So the hearing is held wherever the individual is being held. So that would be either at the IHC in Etobicoke or at the various prisons where detainees are held, dotted around the suburbs and sort of towns uh, in, in, you know, I would say a radius of something like 200 kilometers outside of Toronto. And so I also read in the report there's no duty council for immigration detention in Toronto, or at least there wasn't at the... Yeah, that's true. There is no duty council program. Um, Never has been. And I think, given the recent legal aid cuts in in Ontario, though I think a lot of people would like to see a duty council program out there, it seems unlikely that that will happen anytime soon, unfortunately. And while we focus on Vancouver and Toronto, it is interesting to see all across Canada how access to counsel is completely different. So, for example, Halifax and Saskatchewan, my understanding is they don't have duty counsel programs at all for people as well. Alberta, I think they have two legal aid staff members who will take detention reviews along with their other work when they can. Um, so where you physically are located will really change the kind of access to justice that you have and the ability to argue for your release with counsel. 
And if I'm not mistaken, like in the criminal law context, a lot of attention is paid to making sure that the maximum that the, the maximum period of detention is commensurate with the seriousness of the of the crime and with the the potential threat that that person poses. Uh, but until the habeas corpus um, jurisprudence began in the immigration context, am I right that there was very little consideration of that in the immigration context? I mean, when you say there was a lot of consideration in the criminal context, I'm not sure that that's actually true uh, in the sense that when you see people being detained in the criminal context, they were often being detained in circumstances where they would end up serving in pretrial custody Mm -hmm. longer than they would serve if they pled guilty, um, which is what was recently addressed by the Supreme Court uh, so in the recent case of Myers, the Supreme Court actually addressed this issue with respect to the bail context around when you have access to um, Section 520 review. So in other words, there's, there's been a shift with respect to the law. I think in BC, although the law in other provinces may have been more aligned with that, where you get automatic reviews after 90 days in the Superior Court. So it's almost like a form of built-in habeas corpus. Not, it's not exactly the same in the sense that it's, it's a statutory review under the criminal code. Mm-hmm. But you now, if you're, in, if you're being detained for, if you've been detained for 90 days since your bail hearing, you get an automatic review in the superior court, okay. even if you were detained by the provincial court. Um, in the immigration context, the length of detention has always been a factor, in large part because in many cases, in the criminal context, you have a clear ending. The trial or the, the, the finding of guilt or whatever, there's a clear point at which the process ends. In the immigration context, in many cases, there is no ending. And in the case of a, someone who's just refusing to sign a travel document, how does that tie into a detention ground? Is it just the assumption that, well, they're refusing to sign the travel document, so they're likely going to just not show up for any removal? It depends. Do you want to, do you want to talk about that? Well, I mean, we've, we've dealt with a case or two where this has been relevant. <laughs> yeah, and I'm working on a case similar to one that Erica mentioned earlier. I mean, it's become... I, I actually have been... Uh, thinking about this a lot, and I, I think one can argue that it's become, due to a decision of the federal court rendered by Chief Justice Crampton, uh, it's, it's almost non-cooperation, the refusal to sign a travel document has almost become this implicit ground for detention, which is completely inappropriate in terms of the scheme of the act. It's it's very, um, what would be the word, it's I think improperly linked to Regulation 248, I believe, sub D, which says that after a ground for detention is established, so you know danger or flight risk or whatnot, then there's a series of factors that the board needs to consider. And one of those factors is whether the minister or, minister or the detainee has contributed to any delay in, in the proceedings. So that's been interpreted to mean that the, the detainee has this sort of nebulous obligation to cooperate with CBSA. And that, that obligation is, is, as Peter and I have discussed at length, nowhere defined in the act very clearly. <clears throat> and as a result, the board will often consider that any, any request that the CBSA is making of the detainee that the detainee is not appearing to meet 
contributes in contributes strongly to an argument for, for continued detention, and that's really based on this decision of Chief Justice Crampton and Looney Miller. So whether that decision will ever be revisited remains to be seen, but it's it's made non-cooperation a very prominent feature of a lot of long-term detention cases, for better or for worse. So there's basically two aspects to the rationale. So like the rationale, one is that there's the underlying ground for detention often is based on other things. So in other words, sometimes there's the person is considered a danger, the person is considered a flight risk for other reasons. The non-cooperation is an indicator that they won't comply with uh, terms of release and therefore will continue to be a danger, will continue to be a flight risk because they're not non-compliant. And then the other part that I think is very problematic in the reasoning, in the case that Molly was talking about in, in the decision from the federal court, which is a decision in a case called Lunyamilla, the, the rationale from the court is that the person can then create a standoff with CBSA by not signing the travel document, and then therefore you can't remove him, and therefore uh, the we can't deport the person, so that shouldn't then lead to your release if you're not otherwise releasable. In other words, you, you shouldn't be able to just not cooperate with your removal with the idea that you're going to be able to stay in Canada. Where I see a problem with that is the difference between preventative detention, and Molly and I have talked about this quite a bit in terms of this, this distinction between preventative detention, which is what the Immigration Act should be about, and coercive detention, which is that the detention regime is being used as a mechanism to coerce compliance with the Act. And a lot of administrative regimes have coercive mechanisms built in. If you don't pay your income tax, they're going to come after you and eventually they'll put you in jail until you pay your income tax, right? They'll take away your house, but they'll ultimately there are mechanisms in the law to put people in jail, but they're not done through the administrative mechanisms in the, in, in the Income Tax Act. We do that through the criminal law. So if you want to charge someone under the Income Tax Act or charge someone under the environmental regulations or charge someone under whatever piece of legislation, you do it through the criminal law with a criminal law standard. Mm -hmm. And what we see in a lot of the non-cooperation cases is, and I had an example, I had uh, years ago, there was a, a client that, that we had, which was a, a young woman who claimed to be, uh, and had the accent as if she was from, I think it was Ireland in, in, in that particular case. And she had been picked up on the streets of Victoria, um, was speaking with an Irish accent, and didn't have any identification. And so she was detained, and would have been fully non-cooperative in her removal to Ireland, in the sense that she wouldn't have been able to cooperate. Because it turned out that this young woman, what, three days later, when her mom finally showed up, wasn't from, had never been to Ireland, was mentally ill, thought that she was Irish, but in fact had no connection to Ireland whatsoever. And so would have been detained indefinitely for non-cooperation, even though she was incapable of cooperating. While in the criminal context, you would have had to be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that she had the mens rea not to cooperate, and then she would have been punished with a specific sentence even if she was found uh, non-cooperative. And so that's where I find with the non-cooperation cases, there are some significant problems that we see. Um, I'm not sure that this 
habeas corpus, uh, and, and we'll see how those play out. I'm not sure that some of those problems are going to be solved in the habeas corpus context. Well, my understanding is, sorry, not to, one more thing to add, is there was a habeas corpus that was going to be argued yesterday. It would be worth following up, and that was going to squarely address this issue of non-cooperation. It was a detainee who'd been alleged to not co have not been cooperating and had been detained for five years, and a lawyer out in Toronto has been aiming to get this before a superior court to file habeas corpus application. So I think there is a there is a move afoot amongst the refugee law bar to bring that issue squarely before the, the provincial courts. So what is habeas corpus? It means bring me the body. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's a, it's a really old remedy. What since is it the 1300s that's, that it existed and. Uh, Back in England, when people were being unlawfully detained and they wanted to have the reasons for their detention justified, so habeas corpus would mean bring me the body, and it would mean to bring the person who's being detained before the king or the authority who can decide whether or not they're being lawfully detained or give them the reason for that detention. So it's existed in Canadian law um, forever, and it is also protected under the Charter as a right. People who are being detained have a right to challenge their detention uh, through habeas corpus. And so, unfortunately, it was something that was whittled back, and it was found not to apply to immigrants who are being detained because the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act provides for a complete, comprehensive, and expert regime to review the lawfulness of detention. So for about a decade um, or two decades, it, it was found that um, immigrants don't have access to habeas corpus. But that had actually arisen through a case where somebody was, it was called the Peru case, where somebody was seeking to challenge their deportation from Canada and the restriction on liberty that's inherent with the person's physical removal from Canada. So it was through that case law that this restriction in immigration law came about, even though that case didn't concern the person's detention at all. Um, the person had actually been released from detention while they were seeking to challenge their removal from Canada using habeas corpus. And so the court just continued this line of jurisprudence and that the Peru case would often be quoted as an exception that does exist to the habeas corpus access. And it wasn't really until these cases that we started to see that were so egregious that the the Ontario court in a case called Chowdhury, it was the Ontario Court of Appeal, accepted that in immigration detention specific cases that there could be this access to habeas corpus to review a detention that wasn't being properly reviewed by the immigration division or it wasn't being considered from the same framework. So. Um, in the immigration context, you would consider, is this person unlikely to appear? Are they not cooperating? Do we think that CBSA is trying to remove them and that's enough and they're detained? Whereas the criminal courts are much more versed in the charter right, charter rights of people and um, they're just used to seeing detention in a different context. And so um, it, anyways, the Ontario Court of Appeal accepted that they had a different expertise and could lawfully consider uh, the review of these these wrongful detentions. So this gets into China. So why then, like, why would someone who's in detention and has access to however flawed these 30-day reviews, why would they want to go to habeas corpus instead of the immigration division? 
So let me give you an example um, where somebody was, it was in Ontario where this case arose, um, and it's the case that was Kafka-esque, where the person had been detained and I, they weren't provided a lot of access to counsel and their detention was being reviewed every 30 days, and it was found that they were unlikely to appear for removal. And they, they were trying to make submissions and those submissions were kind of falling on deaf ears because this person was self-represented. Um, and CBSA's word was taken at its word and was given a lot of weight. So CBSA would make submissions about the thing, things that this person did that justified detention. And they were trying to make submissions and the board just said, no, you're unlikely to appear for removal and so we're gonna continue your removal. And when the Ontario Supreme Court looked at this case in full and said, you know, bring me all the evidence, they found that the reasons justifying the detention didn't exist at all. So for example, this person was said to have breached a bail condition, but that bail condition had actually been removed, so they weren't in breach of a bail condition. They had failed to report on a Monday, but they thought that that Monday was a holiday, and so they had a legitimate reason. There was no intent not to comply with their conditions. Um, and they had applied to vary another bail condition, and they thought that that bail condition had been varied, um, and there was, one more reason that I don't have off the top of my head, but so it was those, there was four reasons in total that were justifying detention. And it, it found when they, they actually looked at the evidence and broke it apart rather than just taking CBSA through their submissions, that there was no lawful basis for this person's detention. They weren't unlikely to appear. Um, and so, it, it, and the person just, they, they were given better access to counsel through the Superior Court. I think they had appointed a, a amicus to help them argue the case. But it was basically, it became, there was the system of maladministration before the immigration division and um, nobody was taking a fresh look at this case. And so it was only by pulling it out from that context and having the superior court look at it that they found that this was egregious and ordered their release. So one thing we, we didn't touch on earlier, there is the federal court, which can judicially review decisions of the immigration division. So why couldn't the individual here go to federal court to get it reviewed? Or did they go to federal court? Why habeas corpus in the superior Supreme Court, depending on the province, versus the federal court? And so that was actually part of the focus of our intervention, was the differences between having the superior court look at detention versus the federal court. And some of the most significant differences are the, the fact that the federal court can't order release. So what they can do is they can review or they if, if they can they never do they can review and they can look for errors and they can find maybe a mistake was made in that decision but then the remedy that they grant is to send it back so in reviewing detention they inherently prolong the detention through that review process and then send the decision back whereas the superior court can order release as a remedy if they find that something's gone wrong the federal court will also look at things in a pretty piecemeal fashion, whereas if they find an error, they'll send it back to the expert decision maker, the immigration division, to look at the case as a whole, um, rather than considering itself to be the expert who's going to look at the case writ large. They also only look at the most recent detention decision, so they are sitting in review of a single decision, not the detention writ large. So if these mistakes happened at the original decision to detain, I mean, you could try to argue before federal court that that should be reviewed. But in essence, what you're doing is you're reviewing the, the decision that came 
you know, maybe a year or two years later, rather than the original decision. Um, and federal court takes a long time to be heard, so you, there's a process where you have to apply for leave, the court has to identify an issue based on a written record, it has to grant leave, and then there's a hearing, and then they'll have that hearing, and then they'll issue a written decision. So it's, it's quite a lengthy process, and even with timelines to speed this up, um, it, it's really difficult to get these heard before you're going to have that, that next 30-day detention review, which can then sometimes overtake the last detention review, and it creates this issue of potential mootness. Um, of whatever the, <laughs> yeah, whatever the federal court's going to decide. Whereas the superior court can take a step back and just look at detention writ large. It's not impacted by what's going on in the immigration division, and it can order release. But is there something in the habeas corpus that um, is better than what's written? Is this an issue strictly of maladministration at the board, or is there actually an enlarged power uh, under habeas corpus? I mean, habeas corpus, what it's looking at is the lawfulness of detention. And so the lawfulness of detention exists by virtue of the provisions of ERPA. So it's only really through Section 7 of the Charter and the right to liberty in accordance with principles of fundamental justice and how that interacts with the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act where there's any potential difference. Um, part The Regulation 248 factors that we talked about exist because of charter rights. And so the board is required to consider these Regulation 248 factors and it is required to consider the charter but it doesn't have a lot of expertise in dealing with the charter in the same way that superior courts do. Um, whatever that means, I think now that we know we have access to habeas corpus um, in these cases, I do foresee that future cases will start to tease out what that means and whether or not there is a difference in how these, the immigration division and the superior courts look at the lawfulness of detention. So what you're saying is that either way, whether it's being determined by um, the board um, under the ERPA or being decided by the superior courts under habeas corpus, there's supposed to be a notion of whether the detention, both the nature and the length of detention being commensurate with the with the interest being protected. That's supposed to be there either way. It's just how that's being implemented in either venue. Am I right? With the one caveat, which is a, a point of dispute between the, the majority and the dissent in this case, is whether or not the board has any jurisdiction to consider the conditions of detention. And so once you're detained, it's kind of an on-off switch. The way the board currently interprets its jurisdiction is that it has no jurisdiction over the conditions of detention. So they could put you into a solid, into solitary confinement in a uh, special handling unit um, for no reason whatsoever, and the board would have no jurisdiction over that. Um, and would have no jurisdiction to say, for example, if somebody's moved from a minimum security into maximum security, there would be no jurisdiction for the board. Including Just as accommodation a, for mental health. Correct. Uh, if you were trans, if you were transgendered and you were being detained in a male institution or something, any any issue around the conditions of detention, um, the board takes the view that it has no jurisdiction. And Justice Abella, in her dissent, it takes the view that the board should have that jurisdiction. 
Um, the majority seems to agree, although it's unclear what the majority's position is on the conditions of detention, they appear to accept the position that there is no jurisdiction over conditions of detention, but I think that's the language is less clear. Would have been helpful if it had been more clear. Um, we can maybe talk so about that. So the other thing that the majority did was they criticized the fact that, as you mentioned earlier, a division member needs a clear and compelling reason to depart from previous decisions to detain. And they, seem, they, they say that that's also one of the reasons why the detention regime in the Federal, in the federal Act isn't as rigorous as heaviest corpus, but they don't strike down that jurisprudence. They just say it's problematic. Do you know why they didn't just strike down that jurisprudence or change it? I mean, you want my opinion? Like my, my own opinion is that the only way to justify the approach that was taken by the majority, and I'd be interested to hear what other, the others have to say as well, is that there's a case coming up in Brown where the constitutionality of the, er, the regime under the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act is directly at issue. And Justice Fothergill gave a lengthy decision finding, and, and it, not only, well, finding the act to be constitutional, but he gives a series of prescriptions of things that need to happen for the act to remain constitutional. That is currently, has it been argued before the Federal Court of Appeal yet? I believe so. But we just don't have a decision yet. Correct. Yeah. So it's been, it, but it's currently being litigated before the Federal Court of Appeal, and it just, once a decision is made, leave will almost certainly be sought one way or the other to the court, meaning that this issue of the constitutionality of the regime, which is dealt with directly by Abella and is not dealt with by the majority, the most generous interpretation is that they intend to deal with this in Brown. Mm -hmm. That's my, that's the only um, defense that I could give for what is really a complete a decision not to engage with it. And you're talking about on the subject of conditions? On the subject of the constitute, what, whether or not the regime is constitutional and what needs to be done to make it constitutional. Because right now, if I were, a bo- if I were the board and I read this, it could be used to justify some pretty problematic conduct. I, I, I'd be interested to hear when you guys, that's when what you guys read this. Says, is that the majority creates and almost imposes restrictions on the immigration division with habeas corpus as an alternative. And she says, why would anyone do the former? I guess they have to do the former every 30 days. But why would anyone not do habeas corpus? The language is much more wishy-washy than that. The, well, the language, if you look at the language carefully, what the, what the majority does over and over again is say, the federal court has said, the federal court has done, the federal court has said this, but they don't endorse or uh, criticize. So the discussion of Thanabalasingham isn't an endorsement of, of Thanabalasingham. It's not a criticism of Thanabalasingham. It's a, this is what the courts have done, 
and here's why habeas corpus is better. So it's, right. it, it doesn't actually endorse Thanabalasingham, and so I see you nodding, and I can, well, yeah, I, no, I, I'd I, love I, to hear what you have to say, like, I, I'm going to pass it off to Molly, because I'm sure you have thoughts as well. <laughs> no, I was going to say, I, I fully agree with you, and I think there's no more lukewarm language I've ever read in a decision that if you look at the Chin decision, what the court says, their sort of resounding statement is this immigration division and federal court framework may provide adequate review with respect to some matters. So that so many layers of language between so many edges, so many edges. the court and an endorsement of this. And I think that Peter's probably right what, that what the court is doing here is saying, we're, we're, we're not doing this yet. Yeah. This, this is coming. So we're not going to provide a resounding endorsement of this system that we may revisit very soon, nor are we going to. So you speculate that without, that they know that Brown is on its way up, but had that case not been there, like I took it as a tacit, like they didn't change the federal regime. They just said, this is how it works here. I don't think they could have. Like my observation is, so Mr. China had been deported. So they were deciding a moot case. There wasn't a scenario where this individual who'd been detained for these horrific reasons and was still being detained indefinitely, um, there wasn't someone like that before them in order to make resounding statements one way or another about what had been gone, what had gone wrong in the case before them. And it was such a narrow issue. This is only about, do we get jurisdiction? So they made a lot of really, crit I mean, even in citing the, uh, the audit, which was really critical of how things work in the detention review system, like they made a lot of comments about all the problems that are happening, but it was such a narrow issue that they were to decide, which is, yeah, you get jurisdiction, and then as these cases get decided in the future, hopefully that works out, you know, what these problems are, whether through habeas corpus or the immigration division. How long does habeas corpus take to file and get a decision? They're pretty rare, <laughs> so none of us have actually done one. Um, but and they're different in yeah. different places. The idea is there's you should be able to do it quickly. I saw they're expedited in Quebec and Alberta, or no, Quebec and Nova Scotia, the majorities. But like here, by faster than the next thirty day detention review, or would that not necessarily matter as much in habeas corpus? Or? I think partly it probably depends on evidentiary issues. Like, for example, you can call people and cross-examine them, and you can have evidence produced. And if you need to do that, it's going to take a lot longer. Um, but I think the idea is that it's supposed to be an expedition mm -hmm. process. And I think one of the things about China to look on the bright side is that the way habeas has been used up till now has been carefully constructed, rather elaborate cases because the lawyers litigating them were building up to this yes, yes. challenge, and now that the Supreme Court has endorsed the availability of habeas, you might see lawyers using it more the way I think it's used in the criminal context, which is sort of a quick and dirty remedy, take your record, um, get before the court as quickly as you can, and try and get a release order without spending months interviewing, uh, sorry, um, examining expert witnesses and building up a careful record. Um, because now the constitutionality of the availability of the remedy is, is no longer the issue. So, so as quickly, I think it will change. As quickly as you can, do you see people using this before a 48-hour review, a 7-day review, a 30-day review? I think that would be difficult. I think you could try to twist some arms, but... I mean, the most recent application I filed in the court was about something completely different, but they said that 
um, I could get a fixed date in three weeks from now to then set the matter down. So I don't know if that's reflective of <laughs> scheduling, but. Yeah. Well, the argument um, priority in the Superior Court, and so depending on the province you're in. Um, for me, the, the issue is also, it's, it's not just a question of the time to a hearing, because the, it's a time to a remedy. Mm-hmm. And because when you go to the federal court, although the, the and which is interesting because one of the things that the court says is that the federal court could use mandamus to just release people, but never has. Yeah. The closest we've come to that is the, this odd, very odd state decision, or not, it was an interim release in a case called Kalen where Justice Annis ordered somebody's release. Um, pending the judicial review of the detention, which was a very odd scenario because it's unclear what would have happened if the case was ever going to actually be heard because the, um, if the case, in this case, it was, it worked because the person was removed, in other words, actually left Canada before the, the judicial review was going to be heard, but he ordered the release on an interim basis, and the court just didn't address Kalen at all, or, or that approach at all, but said that they could use mandamus to order release. But what happens in normal judicial reviews, and in all the judicial reviews we've seen, aside from Kalen, is the, it takes, say, about 30 to 45 days to get a decision from the court, and then it gets sent back to the immigration division. And then if the immigration division detains again, then it's another 30 to 45 days before you get before the court again. And then if the court sends it back a second time, even with a directed verdict, you still have to go back to the board to get the release order. And then you're, so you're looking at the, the entire period of time before you actually get a remedy versus in habeas, you might, it might take you the same amount of time to get in front of the court from a practical perspective, but if you're successful, they'll order your release right then and there. How many kicks at the can do you get in habeas? Like, the immigration divisions every 30 days, if you go, say, I don't know, month six, and your habeas application is unsuccessful, is there a waiting period? Is it like you had your chance to argue it's illegal and you didn't? Um, or is it too soon to know what the jurisprudence on this will? It's going to be a, an access to counsel issue, <laughs> probably, and resources. Mm. I, don't, I don't think there's a, an in legal impediment or a legal bar to just keep a person trying it again, but... There has to be an ongoing deprivation of liberty. Right, but like, so I guess as long as they're still detained, they can, go as many, they can make as many habeas claims as they want. They have potential resources. And that's the thing too, from an access to justice perspective. I mean, I don't even know from what you're saying, um, Ontario, for example, um, doesn't even have coverage. Well, they don't have duty counsel, but does that mean that they don't have coverage for detention reviews or? I think they're about to not have coverage. They they did when I practiced there, but now Doug Ford has cut legal aid for I think everything but box. So I think maybe now they don't, though that's a very new world and hopefully not a permanent one. I mean, the other thing, just in terms of your question about whether or not you could, it, it depends on how you define the deprivation of liberty and how the court defines the deprivation of liberty for the purposes of the habeas corpus. So most habeas corpus is actually used in the prison context, not in the immigration context. 
And in the prison context, the point at which you will see the challenge is the, the deprivation of liberty that's a question is not the original sentence. The deprivation of liberty will be the transfer from medium into maximum is the vast majority of habeas corpus cases that you'll see. And once that has been found to be lawful by the court, you can't go back in again to challenge that transfer unless you've gone back to medium and then get transferred back up to maximum. So it's the actual transfer that is the deprivation of liberty, not the, not the length of stay. Not the sentence itself. And so I suspect that in the immigration context, if you were to go in and say, my detention is unlawful because I'm not actually dangerous, and the court says, yeah, yeah, you are, and you know your detention is being upheld on that basis, it's not like you're going to be able to go in and say, well, I'm challenging that decision again because the court's going to say, well, that's already been decided unless the situation has changed in some material way. Which it might if you get the passage of time and a different proportionality analysis, right? right? Oh, like exactly. Six then, months is proportional to the danger that I pose, but 12 months is right. not. So I think that's where you could potentially file another habeas. But, but that's very interesting that the majority of these are based on the transfer um, and not based on length of stay. But there are both, or as far as we understand, they're pretty much all based on on the transfer. The reason in the prison context that they're all based on the transfer is because you can't challenge the sentence through habeas corpus. Right. The sentence itself you have to challenge through the, through criminal no, appeals. No, I'm speaking about in the immigration context. Oh, the immigration context, it's it's usually length of detention, it's not, length of detention. not the transfers. Okay. The transfers are not an issue, at, at least in the cases that we've seen so far. I think there's one or two cases that have raised uh, conditions of detention, mm -hmm. okay. but most of them are about length of detention. Going back to this word immediate, I read the decision maybe like a lay person thinking immediate meant 24 hours or something, that like you file your habeas and it's heard really, really quick, but it sounds like immediate means a few months generally to get a court date or at least... No, they, they, you can set a habeas pretty quickly. Like, if everything quickly is in within a week or two, and like you could have it heard, you know, within uh, like you could get dates and then, but like within weeks, you could have a habeas heard. It depends on the, on the availability of the court and the province that you're in. So, you're looking anyway, like by the time the habeas is filed and heard, there may have been another detention in this a 30 day. In, in China itself, the judicial review had already been heard at the time of uh, at the time that he, by the time the habeas was heard. Mm -hmm. Oh, so that's so the like the, which is which was, is what the dissent. I mean, that's that's Justice Abella's criticism of that reasoning from the majority is that the um, that it's a faster remedy. It, it can be in some provinces, but it's not necessarily heard that much faster. But what you just said is, sorry, um, you know, the fact that you make an application for a habeas and don't get a hearing until such time as another 30-day review has occurred, that doesn't, that doesn't moot out your right. previous application the, the way it would in the context of right. federal court, because the habeas application is not reviewing a particular decision, it's reviewing the entire detention. In practice, so, has the board been treating cases that they know also of habeas claims different? 
like has that impacted how board members are looking at decisions where they know that the same person's filing habeas and that their ongoing detention is going to get reviewed by a, a different court? We're talking about a dozen habeases that have been filed total. Like, as in there's, a, there's maybe a dozen cases in which habeas has been sought in the immigration context since Chaudhry or the other, the, the first set of cases. So right now, we just don't know. Yeah. I think there's a sense that the threat of habeas might spur the immigration division to take a harder look at the application for them, or sorry, not the application, but the hearing in, in some cases, but I think that's more uh, whispers amongst the refugee lawyer bar as opposed to in something I can state with any sort of mm -hmm. certainty. Well, that's kind of um, with all of the, you know, the excerpt that you read, all the hedging events, um, uh, you know, is this a, um, a very quiet, very diplomatic way of saying, hey folks, uh, you know, get the house in order. Um, and I just kind of wonder what your, I mean, obviously this is just a best guess thing, do you think that this will impact the way that detention reviews are heard? Um, you know, what is, the, what is the chatter? What do people think about whether or not that might actually have an impact? I've seen the immigration division members really struggle when new jurisprudence comes from the federal court that changes what they're supposed to consider. And so, like for example, in the danger context or in the context of the Sun Sea, when this, the boat full of 500 Tamil migrants came to Canada, they used to see CBSA release people when they're doing an identity investigation with a copy of a passport and an ID card. And then the, the government started detaining everyone and requiring everyone produce a passport. And they were really frustrated and they said, they would say, they'd look behind that investigation and say, that's not reasonable. You, you've always been satisfied with these other documents in the past. And then the federal court issued a decision and said, no, you, you have to give deference to the minister's decision on identity because they're the experts. And so in, in other contexts too, but I've seen that interplay where the immigration division, they do feel very, like their hands are tied sometimes by these fairly specific decisions that the federal court gives. Um, and they acknowledge on the record that they may have considered things differently before, but now this is what the direction of the federal court is and this is what they have to do. And so I really think where there's missing pieces right now though is how does section seven play into this? Like when, when is too long? So in an identity investigation or in a removal context, how long is too long when you're trying to remove someone or prove that they are who they, they say they are? And so how long does the government get to detain uh, immigrants? And what rights does Section 7 provide people in terms of limiting that? And I think that's where there's a lot of hope that maybe habeas will help give some guidance, for me anyways. Yeah. But I think where the change has come is not the chain of decision, but the lead up. So. The audit, which was commissioned, I think, largely because lawyers were filing habeas corpus applications that were bringing to light all of these issues. That's the reason the the audit was committed by uh, sorry, not committed, um, commissioned by the immigration division of the IRB. And now we have new detention guidelines that have been issued, which, while not perfect, are you know really, really a huge improvement over the, the previous guidelines. There's been a major shift in the leadership of the Immigration Division. There's a new deputy, there's a new uh, deputy commissioner, there's a new, uh, new ADC, excuse me, and 
the, the, the leaders at the immigration division really have expressed a desire to to bring about change. They just hired five new board members back east, all of whom are members of the private bar, which didn't used to be the case. Um, the, the leadership at the ID is attending meetings with the private bar regularly, soliciting feedback. The number of long-term detainees has plummeted. I was just at a workshop where I think they showed us that there were 326 in 2017, and now there are under 100. So, I mean, th there are changes occurring, and that was all pre-China, right? So this has been a buildup of a lot of factors, which I think was, was the intention on the part of, of all the sort of activists and lawyers who were working on these issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think that it's also been helpful having the superior courts give an outside perspective, sure. because it's, it's one of the things that I always see, and in much of my career I've built on coming in as a criminal lawyer, looking at the immigration system going, are you kidding me? This can't possibly be the way this functions. And then, you know, litigating or pursuing cases on that basis. But a lot of the language that you see in the decisions as the superior court judges are looking at these cases, where you realize that there was a culture of complacency that had developed both at the board and at the federal court. Like ultimately, the federal court um, ought to have been overseeing and, and reviewing the, um, the functioning. And that's one of the big differences that we see, which is not mentioned in the, uh, um, or maybe it is mentioned in the case, I don't know, but the access to the court of appeal, right? Which our federal court, the federal court of appeal, hasn't decided, and the only detention case that came before it recently, it decided it didn't decide because it says that the sort of the question wasn't properly certified, mm -hmm. right? And I don't know how many immigration cases we've seen just not decided over the last five years because questions aren't properly certified, because the, the case is moot. And that's of the very limited number of cases where judges even certified questions in the first place. And so in terms of the overview of the, over, the overall regime, we see some, um, I, I think, weaknesses in the way that the federal court system has been engaged in her, under the immigration regime. And when you see the superior courts dealing with it, not only do you have the superior courts weighing in, but in the case of China, it wasn't the superior court. There was a, an appeal as of right to the, the Alberta Court of Appeal. And you have to understand that Mr. China, the court had declined habeas corpus jurisdiction. And in the immigration regime, it would have ended there because there would have been no appeal to the right. Federal Court of Appeal. And this never would have gotten to the Supreme Court because Mr. China would the decision from the federal court would have been unreviewable. So and I so think we need to take a minute to quickly explain the certified question concept. I don't think we've spoken about okay. it before. So you can't just appeal so, a federal court decision to the federal court of appeal? Mm -hmm. Well, not only that, you can't even go to judicial review. First, you have to apply for leave to even get in front of a judge in the federal court. So the first step is you need to apply for leave and there are no reasons when they deny leave at the federal court. And there's statistics from Professor Rehag that show that the, that the levels of granting leave vary significantly among the judges of the federal court, or at least did at the time he did his last study, and he just updated the study not that long ago. 
Then if you get leave and you get to the federal court and the federal court decides the case, when they decide the case, the judge who denied your case will have to certify a question of general importance for you to have a right of appeal. So it's not just that the federal court has to certify a question. The very judge whose decision you are going to appeal is the person who would have to certify the question so that their decision can be appealed. And then when you get to the federal court of appeal, recently, I mean, we've seen this for a long time, but in recent years, much more forcefully from the federal court of appeal, they've been very strict on their interpretation of what a properly certified question is. And so we've seen several decisions in the last few years where the Federal Court of Appeal has refused to decide the case because the question wasn't properly or shouldn't have been certified. And the Lumia Miller case that um, Molly was talking about earlier uh, was the Federal Court of Appeal actually didn't dis review the case and didn't make a decision on appeal because the, the Federal Court of Appeal was of the view that the question of general, was not a question of general importance that ought to have been certified in that case. And so you will see no ability for, and so that case couldn't have gone up to the Supreme Court because it was never decided by the Federal Court of Appeal. Um, and so in this case, in the, in the federal system, would never have gotten to where it is now because you wouldn't have gone up through the courts of appeal. And having those, that perspective from the superior courts and that view from some of the appellate courts, I think is, is going to be an important outside perspective mm -hmm. of people who are where there isn't, and in particular in situations where there's a culture of complacency or, or certain lines of jurisprudence that because of the nature of the federal system become unreviewable at a certain point mm -hmm. or very difficult to review at a certain point. Yeah, but I like this notion though that the by taking it outside of this this system, it kind of shines a light on the idiosyncrasies that we've all just kind of come to accept as being part of the way that the this very insulated uh, judicial system um, operates in the immigration context. One thing that's really frustrating about what Peter's talking about is some of those key cases that are moot and the, that I talked about that the immigration division members now feel bound to follow are cases that the Federal Court of Appeal decided it wasn't going to consider, it wasn't proper properly before them, but these are now the precedential cases that get cited at every detention review. So Lunia Mill is one, B045 is another. And there are cases that the Federal Court of Appeal just refused to engage with. So, And then on top of that, you're getting all of this um, these decisions from the federal court that are also deciding things on a standard of reasonableness, which I don't know if you guys have talked about oh, standard of review. But mootness is one we haven't really talked no, about in any great detail, and I feel like mootness is a particular, like, standalone issue in this context because, um, you know, because of the fact that the, the decisions do become moot so frequently. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if we need to talk about this or if we've sort of covered this off already, but the fact that one decision replaces the other and then they become moot does actually have a really big impact in this in this line of jurisprudence, it seems like. Yeah, yeah. yeah what we kept so, coming back to when we were preparing our memorandum was how discretionary the whole the whole remedy is 
when you're going the route of the federal court. Um, it's discretionary whether they're going to expedite the hearing. It's discretionary whether they're going to allow you to argue it despite the fact that it's moved. Yeah. So you have to continually overcome or, or, or convince the court to exercise its discretion in your favor, um, which is challenging, to say the least. So I see we're at about uh, about an hour. Um, do you do, do you have any last thoughts on your last your parting thoughts on uh, on Chennai? You've read it a couple of times, uh, or maybe only read it once since you're in Spain. Uh. <laughs> oh no, I read it like three times. Oh, three times. <laughs> That's right. what I do on vacation. That's what you do on vacation. You're from Seattle, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and here I was living vicariously. Yeah. Okay. It, to me, it just it feels like part one. I, I think there's going to be more to come, and I'm excited to see uh, what people do with this decision and the decisions that come after it now that this jurisdictional issue has been decided. Hmm. Yeah, and I think I to some degree felt like, okay, this was decided in as narrow a fashion as possible, and that's not all that exciting. We're, we're waiting for, for Brown, but then the other part of me thinks, okay, now I can start considering habeas for various of my clients and it's completely unambiguous that that right is there mm -hmm. and it'll be interesting to see how habeas gets used in ways that it wouldn't have been before. and how it impacts the way that decision making goes forward because hopefully hopefully it does get incorporated and that those idiosyncrasies are seen as such and that adjustments are made internally that's my dream i'm an optimist <laughs> <laughs> in spite of it all <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much to, to both of you for joining us. Yes, and, thank you very much. Uh, we look forward to seeing what's going to happen with all this. Mm -hmm. Thank you.